Xi Jinping has become the most powerful leader in China in decades after being given a third term as leader of the Communist Party. And, uh, President Xi is now the most powerful uh, Chinese ruler since founder Chairman Mao. Xi Jinping just received a rare third term as head of the Chinese Communist Party. And during the 20th Congress, he made some drastic changes that will change China's role politically and economically. Hi, my name is Hannah. And my name is Shreyas. Welcome to Everything's Not Okay. Hannah, we're, we're having our midterm elections right now, but uh, you in your home country also just had an election two weeks ago. It was a landslide victory for uh, Xi Jinping. Congratulations. Actually, it was kind of cutting close, I would say. Um, it was close? It was, it, it was, it was by like a, a bit of a margin, you know? Yeah. He really came in clutch last minute and just... Upset. You yeah, know, he really the, is the underdog. I'm yeah. really rooting for I him. I love those stories. We wanted to actually initially speak to some professionals or some professors in NYU Shanghai, given that we have a location there, about their personal take because they're actually there and they're experiencing a lot of this internal turmoil that's never happened before. And, and let me preface this with, you studied there and this was like a place where people could openly talk about U.S.-China affairs, what was going on in the government. Right. The professors that I interacted with, most of which actually attended university in the, the United States mm -hmm. and were just there as visiting um, professors. So they were very open-minded, you know. They didn't feel kind of shut off in critiquing the Chinese government. Yeah. Um, so I reached out to one of them that I knew personally and two of which I didn't know, but they were there and they have a lot of deep expertise within the area. We won't be naming names for reasons, but all three of which said no. And I want to point out that one of them even emailed back saying, quote, I don't feel comfortable speaking for the podcast, especially about current political affairs. I'm sorry, perhaps after a few years when I become more settled. I will look out for the opportunity to make contributions. Crazy. Yeah, so the sudden censorship and shark shift, I think, really alludes to the shaky next few years we're going to see. And I think it definitely points to the economic and social turnover that has been led by the sole voice and the sole dictatorship of Xi Jinping. So for, for years we knew that Xi Jinping was going to get that third term because the constitution was amended and it was on track to happen. But does this feel like a new Chinese government that we're going into? Because he also appointed a lot of loyalists to his standing committee, the highest committee that governs yeah. the CCP, removing people like Li Keqing, who for a while was an advisor, but also was seen as the only possible person that could have succeeded Xi Jinping. Now he's just gone from the committee. Yeah, so a little context about the party congress. So. It's basically a meeting of the ruling Chinese Communist Party within their five-year political cycle. And over 2,400 people attend this. So these are all the people that are closest and government officials to Xi Jinping. And basically, it's, as you mentioned, a major reshuffling and constitutional change of what the political structure of the CCP looks like. And as you mentioned, Xi Jinping was re-elected by a close margin, um, as the general secretary and Li, Li Keqiang being kind of, he's not, he's gonna be, basically his 
removal or the fact that he's not going to be on the Politburo anymore means that he's stepping down. And as you mentioned, that means that there's no way he can succeed Xi Jinping. But it's also the fact that he's being basically replaced by Li Qiang, mm-hmm. who was the guy who oversaw what we talked about just a few weeks back, the disastrous COVID lockdowns in Shanghai. And that just shows the stark difference in leadership because Li Keqiang is like a sound economic who not only was up for the opening up of China, but also has historically defied Xi Jinping and even led an anti-Xi faction. Meanwhile, Li Qiang basically owes everything to Xi Jinping because he was appointed as Shanghai party (coughs) chief because of Xi. So there's one where they've kind of, you know, questioned and have actually implemented a check and balance to Xi Jinping's policies. And there's another side of the story that is undeniable loyalty. And I think this reshuffling of the Politburo really shows where Xi Jinping is headed. Doesn't this sound like another country that recently just went rogue, where there was one person in charge of everything and a bunch of loyalists who aren't going to say no and only tell him all the good stuff he wants to hear? And that didn't go so well in the long term for uh, Putin's government. So with all the tension that China has right now with the U.S. and with Western Europe over so many issues such as Taiwan, which some people call the Ukraine of uh, Asia, what is, what is the situation going to be like? There's a lot of implications for where China is going to be standing within the larger world, right? And you spoke about Taiwan. Previously, Taiwan is basically listed alongside Hong Kong and Macau as a place to, where, in which China wants to build solidarity with. But now China is basically swearing to oppose and constrain Taiwan independence. As, as we were talking about this, I was just Googling news about Taiwan, and about half an hour ago, Jake Sullivan, our national security advisor, who signaled to China that they want to reopen military-to-military communication. And what's significant about this is that we right now don't have much communication with China on a military level. We're not able to signal to them our preferences. They're not able to signal to us what they're trying to do, what their strategies are. And this means that we're two countries with swords trying to swing at each other in a dark room. And Jake Sullivan is coming in saying, let's turn the lights on and see what's going on. And for context, back during the Cold War, the US and Soviet Union had significant, very, very significant military to military communication. And compared to the Cold War, we're a lot more in the dark with this, you could say, military rival we have. And that's a recipe for disaster, especially when China is now escalating its military operations near Taiwan after the whole Nancy Pelosi mm-hmm. incident. And Biden's saying after that that they would be willing to back Taiwan militarily if China were to overstep. It seems like we're right now in this period right now where if we act surprised that something happens to Taiwan a few months from now or a year from now, it, it, it would be like, how do we not see this coming? All the cookie crumbs are there. And we just have to follow it to something that seems kind of inevitable. I was at a conference a few weeks ago, and one of the representatives for Xi Jinping came and was speaking on behalf of him with a letter on Sino-American relations. And I have a clip right here, but 
she basically indicated that relations between the U.S. and China will remain okay as long as there is no question to China's policies towards Taiwan, which is that there is only one China. We should be persistent in the solemn political commitment made to each other. Defend the political foundation for China-U.S. diplomatic relations, abide by the one China principle, firmly oppose Taiwan independence, and hold firm to the bottom line of no conflict and no confrontation. You know, China was continuing to grow its domestic policies and, you know, expanding its abilities as a power. But now we see CCP kind of turning a sharp turn in which China is now challenging the world instead of focusing on itself. He really wants to basically be like the king of the world. And we kind of also have to ask ourselves, why did we let Taiwan become so important to us because we didn't have the same reaction when Russia took a chip of uh, Ukraine in uh, Crimea a few years ago and the reason why Taiwan is so important is because we made the false calculation that having a huge part of our supply chain technology supply chain car supply chips on chips that are manufactured in Taiwan that only the Taiwan Semiconductor Company really knows how to create and replicate US companies and China companies have been able to do it successfully the way they do and creating this dependence over the years uh, as we more and more globalized was clearly a strategic mistake because now we're in a position where yes we want to back Taiwan I'm sure for the principle of it but allowing China to take over Taiwan and get involved with its ability to self-govern is going to have enormous economic impacts and it feels that with, with what you said earlier, the crackdowns on big companies and Xi Jinping has now swung towards a huge preference for state-owned companies. Uh, whereas before it was a fair marketplace for privately owned companies and public companies to compete. And now with these threats to Taiwan, the CCP's mandate to govern has always been, Professor Fadi would always say this, uh, you, give, you give us the right to govern and we'll give you unprecedented economic growth, 6 to 8% increase in GDP every single year. And now it seems that Xi Jinping has walked back on that with the consolidation of free market, increased pressure, increased censorship, pressure on Taiwan. It seems like the mandate is changing that the CCP has with its people. Yeah, and you know, this really counters Deng Xiaoping's open door policy that really led to China's large GDP growth that has really just surprised, I guess, the entire world, you know, it really lifted the majority of Chinese people out of poverty. Mm -hmm. And Xi Jinping is now just really kind of turning against that, not in that he's taking away a lot, but that he's kind of directly challenging the ruling party of the elites, you know, it used to be a group of elites, rich, you know, private, Mm -hmm businesses kind of like also influencing state governments but Xi Jinping is getting rid of that you know he's really redirecting the wealth and I think ultimately it's going to be not where China's headed but ultimately what Xi Jinping wants you know Mm -hmm. like what is the 69 year old man waking up in the morning what is he feeling like you know 
and we spoke about this earlier in our podcast, but the removal of Hu Jintao, um, he was sitting right next to Xi Jinping during the party congress. This and, was, and this was during the election where Xi Jinping got his third term. Yes, it this was, was literally a very, very choreographed ceremonial program that is put on for the whole world to see. I would, the whole world except for China, I would say, because this yeah. clip is actually something that most people can't see in China. And, and walk us through what happens in this clip, because okay. when you showed it to me, I my jaw dropped. I was really upset by this, because Hu Jintao is a very old man, and, you know, he's sitting right next to Xi Jinping, and he's the one... And Hu Jintao is the former yeah, president Yeah, he was the China. person before mm-hmm. Xi, Xi Jinping. And usually, you know, they're kind of the person be- before you is kind of like, a, you know, like an elder, no, an elder yeah. you know, like giving you advice, overseeing. It, it, it's more of like a project, like a, like a gradual process of the continual expansion of mm-hmm. China. But basically what happens is Xi Jinping waves over someone, right? And Hu Jintao was looking at a folder. We're st- this this entire interaction is still highly contested. We don't really know exactly why he was removed. Some people say he felt sick, or it well, was that's the it state was, media yes, report. Okay, yes. He was feeling a little sick all of a sudden, and then all of a sudden he had to be taken out because he, you know maybe he had COVID, and the zero COVID policy sure. says okay. But there's also reports that the page that he had was the original list of who's supposed to be in the standing committee with his protege, Li Keqing, and a couple others who were there's a lot allegedly of theories. in the last yes, minute Yes, there's removed. a lot yeah. of theories. There's a lot of theories. Um, but basically, security comes. Um, he does not want to leave, and it's very obvious in the video. He He's confused. He even, at one point, when he's being escorted out, kind of touches Xi Jinping like, you know, motions at him, and season Ping just looks dead on straight. And he passes at least 37 of the most senior members on his way out, none of which acknowledge him anymore. So let's try to figure out what switched. And my theory is that it has something to do with the fact that China's having very, very low fertility rates. They're having a ballooning elder population with a very much slimmer youth population than they'd like that Xi Jinping is projecting their economic growth to plateau a lot sooner than the rest of the world expected it. And right now, China, the Chinese youth have a one out of five unemployment rate, which is remarkably high. And these are young people that have only ever grown up in a very prosperous, very globalized China and are experiencing a lot of hardship for what is the first time in what they know is China's history. And the Chinese youth play a big role in, in CCP politics and I think a lot of the world doesn't get to appreciate. The China Youth League has a membership of tens of millions and so the China Youth League is basically a subsection of the CCP where young adults and students can get involved. The CCP's membership, I think I read that around half, 40%, are under the age of 40. Oh wow. And that's similar to the Liberal Party in the US, the Democratic Party. And other parties, in, for comparison, in the U.S. and around Europe, have about about 20 to 30 percent of their membership being less than 40 years old. So, change in China has always come from the youth. The CCP, in its founding in 1921, 
was a youth-led movement of 20, or 20 to 30-year-olds. Mao Zedong, at that first National Congress meeting for the CCP, was 28 years old. Later, there was a lot of student protests that led and ushered in the Deng Xiaoping reforms and the globalization, and the Tiananmen protests was also student-led, with a lot of more pro-democracy, reform-oriented thought leadership happening in China's elite universities. So could it be now that Xi Jinping is seeing that the promise of a even more prosperous China for the youth is something that might not be able to be something he can deliver on? So now he has to resort to absorbing the levers of control. I definitely agree with that. And I think more than that, it's not just the youth that he's kind of angering. As you mentioned, if he's not able to promise his economic growth, the vast majority of Chinese people are going to be unsatisfied because they're still having their freedom limited and they're no longer really receiving the benefits that they were promised. And I think that's why Xi Jinping is changing the narrative into that China is under attack. You know, security was the word that was the most repeated in his report and speeches. And he really has to craft this, you know, clever political agenda and narrative that China is under attack from all directions and Xi Jinping is the only person that can save it. He's the only person who knows what's going to happen. He's the only person who can and has the ability to tackle on these different countries that are basically out to get China. Out to get China. Yeah. You know, that, and that includes getting Taiwan back. It includes China, you know, expanding its governance because he needs to prove something. If he isn't able to prove that or if he isn't able to come up with a good enough narrative that is justifiable to the vast majority of the Chinese population, then he's going to be outthrown, as you mentioned. The mm -hmm. youth, people are dissatisfied. So we will go to NYU and NYU has a campus in China, NYU Shanghai, that they send a lot of students to. Right now, NYU is full of these NYU Shanghai students who are supposed to be in Shanghai but can't get in. I was supposed to go to China a while ago, and I, I applied to study abroad there again next semester. And they said, yeah, come at your own risk, and if you can get a visa, which you absolutely can't, because uh, you're a U.S. citizen with no affiliation to China, and there's Chinese citizens in the U.S. who can't get in. And it's interesting that a country that used to be so involved with the rest of the world had such good relationships with an American university where Chinese students could easily study here and U.S. students could easily study there. It's, it's interesting that we're watching in our own classrooms and on our own campus a split in what has been cherished as great relations between U.S. and China for many, many years. Even from my mom, who is currently in America, she's really upset because she grew up in a society with Deng Xiaoping, like this economic reform, and the finally like seeing what China could be, you know, it doesn't have to be like against the world, it could be with the world. And it's just sad to see Xi Jinping kind of turn the narrative and say, no, it's us against the world, it's one China. Everything's not okay. Everything's not okay with China.